the consumption of alcohol was pretty high in the 19th century, not only in America, but in the entire Western world. So much so that temperance movements sprung up in North America, in Europe, and beyond. Megan Bever joined me to discuss her fantastic book entitled At War with King Alcohol, Debating Drinking and Masculinity in the Civil War. Now, we've heard about Civil War soldiers drinking and partaking in liquor that they make in the field, but how is that seen by others? How is that seen by their comrades? Was it seen as patriotic, or was it seen as being unpatriotic? Megan really helps us shed light on this in our talk, and I really enjoyed our time together. Please pick up a copy of her book, At War with King Alcohol, Debating Drinking and Masculinity in the Civil War, brought out by UNC Press. This is a fantastic discussion and a way to look at alcohol a little bit differently as far as our ancestors were concerned. Megan, thank you so much for being on my YouTube channel. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. And thank you for a wonderful monograph as well. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really uh, interesting study, to say the least. Uh, the the former Civil War reenactor in me is like cringing at times because I'm like, I remember how much alcohol was out there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, you, the ideas of masculinity and alcohol really took over when you were in the field doing that kind of stuff as well. So it was good to see what the original guys yeah. really thought about this. And I hope that a lot of people connect that uh, in the modern sense. Where did this research really start, Megan? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the book really grew out of my dissertation with some heavy revisions. Um, and I think I went to grad school knowing that I wanted to study the Civil War in general. I definitely did not go to grad school thinking that I would become really interested in temperance reformers. Hmm. Um, and so the project really grew out of there, like a growing interest in um, in reformers and I think in their concerns about drinking, um, kind of the, the social tensions that um, that caused the temperance movement in a world where people drank a lot. Um, and I had a really good advisor. Um, I went to the University of Alabama. I worked with George Rabel, who's a prolific Civil War historian. Um, and he's really good at at conceiving of kind of broad social cultural topics. So he really helps me put the two interests together, think about different ways of looking at drinking. And of course, the project ended up going a long way beyond temperance reformers. They come and go, um, but it's much more a story about drinking, why people drink, its relation to medicine, but then also, as you were saying, its relation to masculinity and its relation to how people conceive of their roles as Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it ended up being, you know, a, a, a research project that is in so many ways about the 1860s and in so many other ways, um, I think ties into some of the big questions and issues we still ask ourselves and our and our communities um even in the 21st century mm -hmm. I, I i may be jumping ahead here by saying this but right. you bring up what we talk about in the modern era 
I actually saw some overlap between the words that were said at that time that you placed in this book and some of my friends who are fighting for uh, rights for marijuana use. Yeah. Where I'm like, wow, okay, these, this is this is a parallel I didn't see coming right. when I read this. Right. And I, I did most of, I mean, I did the research and most of the writing. Um, I think some states were legalizing marijuana by the time I um, was finished writing. But of course, I feel like that just keeps proliferating. And Missouri, where I live, has just legalized. It's just been, become legal in the past few weeks. Um, but it's, I think it's really interesting. And I, what I think is particularly interesting is how these debates about acceptable use, whether you're talking about liquor or you're talking about marijuana, they start with people saying like, I'm doing this for my health, right? That's mm -hmm. where the conversation starts. It's like, it's just a little, you know, a little medicinal smoke here and there. Um, yeah, a little, it's little, innocent. it's innocent. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not like, and I, and I don't say that to like judge. I, I just think that, that, yeah, I have no moral stake in this. I, I just think it's really interesting that this is the way we come at it as Americans. If we're doing it for our health, then surely it's okay and we can justify it and our neighbors shouldn't be mad at us and, you know, God shouldn't be mad at us. If it's just because we're sick, it's okay. And of course, obviously then that the, the definition of what wellness is broadens, right? You know, what it means to be healthy. And next thing you know, we're, we're very recreationally drinking and smoking. I guess, I don't know any other way, you know, to, to put it, but I, I find it interesting. Um, and the, the federal versus state um, laws and the way that those are kind of butting heads um, is a little, it's a little bit different with, with, um, uh, marijuana. I, I've been told by younger people that I should call it weed, um, but whatever. <laughs> I'm too old. I'm so I, yeah, yeah. but uh, I don't know. It's just a lot of the, I notice maybe not exact parallels, but I notice a lot of rhyming between my own research and what's going on um, now with, right. with uh, legalization. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I, I get it mixed up too, where they're like, come on, old man, you're, you're just talking marijuana. You need to be talking about weed. And I'm like, yeah. okay, I, I don't, I don't get this. I, I caught that in my last class that I taught at the university level. Uh, I showed my age. Um, yeah. With this idea though, obviously there are people who are teetotalers like me uh, who uh, say, you know, I understand what this can do to you. I've been through this and I really liked the organizations you talk about in the book in the antebellum period, and then they, they come into a different kind of form during the war, uh, especially like the Sons of Temperance. That sounds mm -hmm. like a, like a Sons of Anarchy without the alcohol. Um, yeah. what, uh, what, were, what were these temperance uh, people like, if you will, in the antebellum period before right. the war starts, and how did that kind of get underway? So they, um, they grow, the temperance movement, and it, and it it grows out of um, like in 1820s. That's really where it starts to get rolling. And it, and it grows out of these social concerns about too much drinking. And it starts with just wanting to curtail those excesses. And then it really very much by the 1830s moves into a teetotaling movement. So people who argue that total abstinence is is best and it's the only way to go because once you start drinking it's just a slippery slope to your ruin um and i think 
So it, it, it's one of the most popular reform movements in the antebellum United States, especially in Northern states. And I think it's really easy um, to kind of roll your eyes at the reformers. Like, and I, I mean, I do it myself. They have a lot of hyperbolic quotations and they can be just so ridiculous, even in the 1860s, that it's almost funny. But I think the reason that they appeal to people is that it is a society where people drink a lot. And in part, they're drinking a lot because there's no such thing as purified water. So, you know, cider, beer, it, more cider, but the, like those are safer drinks. Um, but it really goes beyond that. And as the historians who study antebellum drinking are saying basically like that a lot of Americans are just drinking exorbitant amounts of liquor every year. So a lot of people are drunk. And in a world with more factories and more industry, many who are drinking are losing their jobs they're getting stressed, they're coming home, they're beating their wives, you know, or they're leaving their families. So it's not, I think the reason temperance reform is so popular in the decades before the war is because it's not, it's a real problem. Um, so their rhetoric can be ridiculous and exaggerated, but they're not wrong that women get beaten more when men drink more, right? That's, that's not, like they're not wrong about that. Um, and so I think I, I, I waffle between getting really exasperated with them and also feeling like these are people who have concerns and they have every reason to be concerned. Um, where I think it gets, a, where maybe they get a little more stubborn or obstinate is they don't like license laws. So by, by the time the war starts, temperance reformers have been successful in a lot of ways because they've gotten a lot of license laws and, and regulation in place that um, prevents, excess, like prevents excessive sales, um, requires documentation and, and certain, you know, just regulations on who can sell, um, regulates the trade a little bit so you don't have as much poison uh, in a literal sense, mm -hmm. um, on the market. So drinking has really been curtailed, but most Americans are comfortable with that moderate consumption, that regulated but legal um, moderate consumption for alcohol. And temperance reformers want everyone to totally abstain. And they think basically that there's this moral problem with the state uh, sanctioning sin. So they've really put it in a moral framework instead of just dealing with the practical problem. Um, so that's where I think they get, you know, a little bit, I don't think, ridiculous is not the fair academic word, but I, you know, <laughs> study them enough that sometimes I think they're ridiculous. It's a, it's a layman's way of looking at it where you're like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, I'm like, that's yeah. never, like, it doesn't work. Right. Nobody wants it, but you all. And all, like, it, it, it gets to a point where they're just never happy because their expectations are so high. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, I guess, a kind of a long answer to your question about what temperance reformers are doing. Yeah. Is it almost is it almost an extension of what's left over from the Enlightenment era, where you're kind of like you're trying to find this purity or this pure life or or something to that effect, where you're, you have that salvation kind of thing? I, you know, I would say it connects more directly. Um, like one of the first temperance reformers I really think about is Benjamin Rush. So that founding era where you're looking at like public virtue in in a Republican society. 
Um, so he's really thinking about, I think, the broad political culture in that if we're going to have a society where citizens are active politically, we've got to have some temperance here and 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 some self-control and not a lot of drinking because if voters start drinking, if office holders start drinking, that's not good for a representative government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and of course, Rush is, so yes, in the long like trajectory, it connects to the Enlightenment. Um, but I think the reformers kind of pull from Rush and then the Second Great Awakening. So there's a lot, I mean, their reformers are very middle class, but they're also very evangelical. So Methodists, Presbyterians, um, some Baptists, but people who think that drinking creates a societal problem that's going to delay the second coming of Christ. So the, the stakes are high for them. Hmm. It is a life and death for yeah. those who aren't even partaking because they, they are saying that, well, if you keep doing it and you impact how something occurs or how politics go, then that impacts me. Absolutely. And we all go like we all sink or swim together. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When when uh, war breaks out in 1861 and we start going into this idea that uh, men now entire neighborhoods are, are joining up, uh, the male population is. Uh, what are some of those worries from people in the temperance mm-hmm. movement and beyond of, okay, now they're transferring into soldier life and what are the problems that could come from that? So I think, um, I think there are two related concerns. And the first concern is that these men are going off to camps where you've got a lot, like basically a lot of young adult men who are, living outside of the control of their families. And we had seen, like, without getting too far off track, um, like, these concerns do show up when you get um, the growth of cities, when you have a lot of young men go to factories to work or go to the cities to be clerks. These concerns show up there. That's where the Sons of Temperance comes from in the first place. Um, All these young single men in the cities without those kind of restraining influences home. So I think you see reformers and beyond. Um, there's just this concern that a lot of young guys together in camp um, are not going to remember how to remain sober. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a big frat party. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not, yeah, right. It's not completely unlike the kind of the college. It's like we're young adults who don't have any responsibility. I say we right. like I'm among them, but um, <laughs> right. It's the same. It's the same type of thing when you don't have family responsibilities and you have a lot of free time, you know, drinking it tends to be a part of that. And um, so I think there's that concern and reformers try to get them to join temperance regiments to take the pledge before they go, but added on, it's not just that you're taking men and putting them all in a tent right. city together. It's it's that you're taking them, putting them in camps together. And in those camps is a military world where drinking is common among officers and where rations are distributed regularly. Hmm. So, and again, especially for reformers, but even beyond those communities, it's just this concern that you're taking these men who are already vulnerable and you're putting them in an environment where sin is handed out, I guess, I guess, if you will, at times. So, yeah. 
Yeah, what are some of those reasons, Megan, that they are getting these in their ration issues? Because yeah. that's something different. We we saw this in the 19 uh, until the 1960s and early 1970s in rations in the military because they were doing it with cigarettes and then it was taken yeah. out in the 1860s it's alcohol. alcohol so why are they why are they saying okay we're going to issue this as a ration what are some of the reasons why right and 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 to answer this question i do just want to clarify so for a lot of the study um i see the same concerns in the union and the confederacy so in a lot of ways i'm making points that I think apply in both cases. So before I talk about uses, I do just want to point out, though, um, the Confederacy has a lot of supply shortages. So while there may be kind of the same general uses of, of liquor rations in both the Union and the Confederate armies, um, it's, it's going to come into play in the Union more where the Confederacy isn't going to have enough supplies to really make to really make these rations regular. So with that being said, I think there are really kind of four uses that I see. Um, the first is treating illness and wounds. Um, there's this, this idea that, um, that liquor is a stimulant, which is exactly the opposite of what we know it to be. Um, but this idea that it can really uh, reinvigorate the body um, if it's been wounded or if it's sick with, with some disease. Um, so that's one use. Um, treating malaria, they mix it with quinine. Uh, uh, whiskey is used to cut quinine. And they try to use it not actually to prevent malaria, um, not treat it. And the, you can't really use it as a prophylactic, but they think that you can. And they're trying. Um, and um, so those are really the medical, like the straight up medical uses. And then it expands beyond that. So you're really getting into like the subsistence departments. I don't know if you have any, if you have any listeners who are really into like the military supply mechanisms, I guess this oh, yeah. is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I suppose yeah. love logistics out here. Okay. <laughs> all right. All I kind of have a soft spot for it's it. But um, so once you get into subsistence, then you're really looking at um, liquor rations being permissible um, if men are are facing any kind of exposure. So any kind of harsh weather, um, wet, cold, gross, muddy, those sorts of things. Um, and then finally, um, this notion that they can get a ration if they experience extreme fatigue, hmm. which starts with you know, fatigue duty. So you dig a trench or you bury the dead and you deserve a drink. Um, probably is especially in the second case. Um, but uh, if that really gets expanded, um, and I, I think that's where, so I see soldiers and officers arguing that they're drinking because they're sick. There's plenty of that. But there's also commanding officers arguing that their men are exposed pretty much all the time. Um, or that they're fatigued, those those definitions really broaden. But I think most uses stem from one of those, they're, they're in one of those categories. Mm. It was almost uh, common in some cases for officers to drink. Yes. Uh, it was kind of like a, a thing where it's like, okay, the officers are going to have a drink in the commanding officer's tent, you know, or the colonel's yeah. tent or whatever. Uh, but that kind of slowly filters out because leadership uh, values can filter out right and yeah. and uh that has a double-edged sword really <laughs> at the end of it because now you have enlisted men who are quote acting like officers and they're right. getting a little too tipsy right uh 
it seems like they're kind of blaming each other at times where they're enlisted men are saying, well, it's the officer's fault. And the officer's saying, right. well, you should know better. Right. Is this a constant thing in both armies where they're just butting heads about this whole thing of who is responsible for the men's actions? Yeah, I think, I think butting heads is a good way of looking at it. And I think, you know, on the one hand, I mean, as you're saying, officers are allowed to drink. Enlisted men are not unless they get a ration, which yeah. is so, so it's not really that clear. And, and you can understand why enlisted men are frustrated that they can drink in these certain circumstances, but they can't go to town and get their own liquor when officers can. So I think there's jealousy. Um, I think officers have a problem in that whiskey is permissible in certain circumstances and it's permissible anytime they say it is. But if men drink excessively, enlisted men drink excessively, then they have to arrest them. And there's no, the military doesn't really have good mechanisms that work for preventing drunkenness. And when they try to punish enlisted men, it just backfires. Like if they do, because then it becomes abusive and it looks arbitrary and it looks really harsh. Um, and so other soldiers get mad. Um, but I think, and I think part of it too, enlisted men don't want to get in trouble for it. And I mean, right. they especially don't like it when their officers are drunk and abusive. So where I see the most pushback is from enlisted men who maybe aren't that drunk or are just drinking moderately and they are under the command of an officer who's drunk, um, who is marching them too much when he's drunk, who is, and they, and they'll, they'll say things. I mean, as much as like, I'm being wasted, like I'm going to desert and go to a company where I'm not being misused. Um, so this idea that I think the men are very much aware that they belong to the state for better or worse, that they're supposed to be doing some duty for the country. And if officers are too drunk to make that happen, then it's wasteful and it's unpatriotic, like almost criminal. Um, so yeah, they're on the one hand, you've got military trying to control drunken soldiers and, and, and drunken officers in some cases. And then you have the men absolutely pushing back against officers who are abusively drunk. You bring up uh, something, you had a great lead in there because I was like already thinking about this for the next question. So we're leading right into it where the idea of either A, not drinking or B, understanding your limit and being uh, drinking moderately was seen as patriotism, uh, especially when you're fighting someone, you know, who's just from the next state over or anything and you have this really... Uh, uh, passionate feelings about what is and isn't patriotism. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you explain that in, in a little bit of detail where they connect patriotism and tyranny to how much you drink uh, yeah. in the field? Right. So I think there's this thought that some, like that some drinking in the field, you just have to have it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think soldiers are very much out of sync, especially with temperance reformers, but with people on the home front in general, because I think soldiers, I mean, and, and they go so far as to say, you know, I'm scared of dying. Um, and there's this one officer who says that he's like, my men are scared of dying. I'm going to let them party in New Orleans like that. You know, it's like we're in town. They deserve the stress relief. Um, 
But I think they know they have to drink to take the edge off. And again, they don't always have clean water. So, mm-hmm. um, but there is this, this idea that if you drink too much in battle, it can cause you to be a coward, which they're very worried about in general. Um, and then they also have this idea too, that your patriotism shouldn't be fueled by liquor alone. So you should be able to do your duty and charge what you need to charge without being, you know, whiskey fueled to use kind of one of their expressions. Um, And so they will accuse their like opposing soldiers or enemies. They'll accuse them of being like whiskey brave or something like that, basically. and, And you see Union soldiers saying this, like the Confederacy is so depraved the only way they can get their men to fight is to get them liquored up. Mm. So I think even as men are again, like using those rations or, you know, self-supplied rations to kind of bolster their own health in their minds, there's this notion that if you drink too much and if your courage comes from being drunk, that's indicative of a cause that's not worth fighting for. Mm. It also fuels the rumor mill, right? Because people are saying this person can't lead. They must be drunk. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I think this is one of the more fascinating bits of the, um, that I I found while I was doing research. And it's, you know, when it comes to to generals or high ranking officers, I think you have the public um, looking at their performance on the battlefield and trying to make um, judgments about their character based on their, again, on, on a performance that's really professional, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like whether you're a good general is probably not related to your morality. It's probably related to, to your understanding of how to um, manage a a battle or a campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have these different officers and they worry about their drinking. So one really prominent case is Hooker, um, Joseph Hooker, after the Battle of Chancellorsville, of course, he experiences a disaster. And then um, actually a temperance reformer, um, Henry Beecher, so from the Beecher family, he starts this rumor that Hooker was drunk. Um, and Hooker had a reputation for being a drunk. It's mm-hmm. he, whatever. Um, <laughs> he liked to party. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he... Um, it ends up being like there's an inquiry, like Gideon Wells looks into it. Um, and and what's interesting about that is the other officers kind of close ranks around Hooker. Um, and they say he wasn't drinking. His like he was sick, mm-hmm. but he, and, and that's where I see this. And it's like he was sick, which kind of would justify the drinking, even if it had happened. But it really seems to be like the truth seems to not matter. Um, that civilians want somebody to blame and want some excuse for why Hooker messed up. His questionable character is an easy thing to blame. But then you see the officers really close rank and say, no, absolutely not. He wasn't drunk. That wasn't why this happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. One guy says, you know, maybe the problem was that he wasn't drunk enough, um, (laughs) that he was like usually drunk. And so he's got some, some, withdrawal but for the most part they say no he was sick he was out of sorts but this was not a a flaw in his character Mm. um 
And where I think it's most, and that happens, like it doesn't just happen with Hooker. It happens with Jubal early on the Confederate side. It happens with Urban McDowell, um, who isn't a drunk but gets blamed right. for it. Um, where I found it's really interesting with Grant. And I, you know, when I started the project, I kind of knew that everyone would expect Grant to be in the project. Mm -hmm. um, but I also knew, like, there's no... You know, the Grant biographers are amazing and there's no way I'm going to compete with like what they know about Grant and his drinking. But what I found really interesting were these public rumors and debates. So all of the whispers mm -hmm. about the drinking and what the conversation really came down to um, was people saying like, I don't know, I've heard he drinks. There's a lot of evidence that he drinks, but maybe he doesn't. Well, but he just won at Shiloh. So he must have been sober. Well, but And then they like the rumors will start up again. Like, no, they say he drinks, but he's winning. And he can't win if he's drunk. And so they like the, the, these communities in the North temperance communities and like and beyond, they ultimately conclude like, well, he keeps winning. So the reports that he's a drinker must not be accurate. Like they can't square the fact that like he might be good at his job. Mm -hmm. And also drink like right. they they can't make that happen. Right. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was the one, that was the one I knew would have to come out in some yeah. way because it's the it's the one that everyone talks about, uh, right. you know. And 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 Grant always comes up in this conversation and and uh, for good or for worse uh, with, yeah. with the idea of drinking and and sobriety and 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 was he or wasn't he and the armchair generals come out and right from there um we have to talk about uh culture and culture greatly affects this i know that uh, i'm descended from germans and scotsmen and that's what they do uh they they, they drink when yeah. they get together except on christmas which is an odd thing uh for my family I, yeah they don't drink on christmas but you had that cultural thing in and especially in the u.s army at this time because you have uh, entire brigades that are German or, or divisions that are German. Talk about that mix of, you may have Germans next to you who are drinking their lager and having a great time. And you're like, well, why are they doing that when, we're right. doing when, we, when we can't? Right. So German soldiers in the war get, uh, as you were saying, beer rations or lager rations. They get them more than native-born troops get them um and part of this is the german drinking patterns are different right and i think it's more culturally central um but native-born soldiers get jealous about it so there's some um some accusations that german american soldiers are drunk um and i do think that that's fueled a lot by jealousy um other historians like christian keller he's he's noted this as well um and for their part, and well, two things here. I think Germans get blamed a lot. Um, so at Chancellorsville, a German American regiment takes the blame for a lot of the defeat. And there's a lot of character assassination and this notion that they're cowards, which goes with the fact that drinking is a part of, you know, of their culture. Um, but it, it's really a continuation, like German, Brewers have been targeted before the war. A lot of temperance reformers are also nativists 
They target uh, German beer gardens with their Sunday laws. Um, they'll also target Irish people, um, accuse them of drunkenness. Um, where I see the most pushback, and I think it's just because maybe I have more sources, but um, German-American soldiers really push back. Um, they think that teetotaling is like is an extreme position. They don't understand it, but they also don't really understand American drinking patterns. Like they think they're reckless. Um, and so they'll argue basically like that if Americans could control themselves hmm. um, and drink responsibly and moderately, um, that we wouldn't have all of these problems. So you see, I think German American frustration, um, and, uh, the, and they push back against this notion that they're not good citizens, um, that they're not good fighters. But and this is more other historians work than my own, but they do get frustrated um, as the war goes on. Um, and this it's mostly there are more German Americans in the on the Union in the north. But um, there are actually German Confederates as well. And there's one particularly um, verbose diarist in Richmond, um, who is a German Richmonder and he is, um, he's a saloon keeper. And so he has these frustrations all that he is just incredibly supportive of the Confederacy, um, is getting hit by changing license and prohibition laws like throughout. Um, and he doesn't like it when his business is chast like he's, he says, I'm a good Confederate, like stop chastising me and I'm providing a service. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Um, so it's not, it's maybe more common in the North to see those conflicts, but it definitely exists in the Confederacy as well. Yes, your book uh, really gave me more ammunition to stand up for the U.S. Army 11th Corps and then be like, you guys are just jealous because you don't get the logger. That's, that's yeah. all there is to it. And I never put two and two together that that could be a possibility here. Yeah. where where that is going i just thought it was a nativist only well, kind of thing but then you have the temperance kind of ideal behind that and i'm not knowing also that many temperance uh people who believe in the temperance movement are nativists yeah they are yeah that's i mean that's a really yeah it's a really ugly um i don't know if you could call it an undercurrent because i'm not sure it, it was mm -hmm. but um it's it's a really ugly part of the temperance movement mm -hmm. um that they are are very nativist uh, just so everyone uh, watching understands, what is a nativist, Megan? So a nativist is a person who uh, privileges native-born Americans and um, discriminates against immigrants. So um, temperance reformers in this case would have argued that immigrants, particularly uh, Irish and German immigrants, are undercutting the fabric of American society um, mm -hmm. by bringing in liquor, um, in the case of Germans, uh, businesses, right? So breweries and beer gardens and things like that. And then from bringing drinking into the cities. Um, and so, I mean, beyond the temperance movement, the nativists are blaming immigrants from for all of the infrastructure and social problems um, that are happening because the cities are growing. Um, and, and so there's poverty and the living conditions are not great and there is more crime. And it's easier for nativists to, to, to pin that on German and Irish immigrants than it is for them to, you know, just look at 
the the broader social problems mm. um, that are that are inevitable. I think when cities are growing. Mm -hmm. So another parallel with the modern era, where it's yeah. like a new way of thinking. This is something yeah. that's been part of society even in old Europe. It was a part right. of society as well. Right. Uh, with with the uh, closeout of the war itself, and and uh, you don't don't have a uh, you know this isn't the focus of your book, but I've often wondered this is happening during the war. After the war, we see this this kind of shift where it's like it's we have kind of the first problem with drugs uh, with some of these soldiers, and I'm wondering if this idea of not having moderation in drinking keeps going because of the fact of they're now using it to medically quote forget about yeah. what they experienced is it used in that uh i know it's kind of a little bit outside your scope with the book itself but in your research did you find that kind of progressing beyond 1865 at all or or is it kind of have a kind of a, i'm not with my buddies now i gotta i gotta no. I think, and, and this gets into, um, Jim Martin's work on veterans. So mm, he, yeah. he looks at this, act, um, but, um, it, it does continue. And I think becomes a solitary way to, to numb physical and mental pain. So mm. drinking is really a problem in veterans homes. Um, and I think again, like the, the, there, if you, you know, if you read studies by Martin or by like Sarah Handley Cousins and these other people, like soldiers, I mean, just the physical pain alone, I think was was unbearable for many people. Um, and then you add kind of the trauma on top of it. Um, so they continue to drink. They continue to drink in veterans' homes. And I, what I think I see is that they're being pushed outside of mainstream society. And of course, Jim Martin gets into this a lot more, um, that veterans are kind of literally fenced off in some ways. Um, and I think I see the inklings of that in the war, that veterans have had to adapt their definition of manhood. And drinking is one place we see it, but it's obviously a much wider definition, but they have to adapt their definition of what it means to be masculine because they've just experienced something so horrific and their definitions are not what mainstream civilian society expects of a man like that able-bodied you know provides for his family self-controlled ideal that's really not something you can do if you've experienced war for four years um or maybe you can't do it but not you know it's very difficult um so yes, I think I see those tensions continuing into the post-war years. Hmm. It's an interesting fact because we look back on it now with the veterans of the Civil War and we see the, the grand reunion in 1913. We see the 1938 reunions. We see reunions happening at GAR halls and uh, U UCV halls and, and such. And we don't think about them being pushed away based on, yeah. on their service and, and what they experienced because now they're seen as something different but it's yeah. almost like that fear of when they went into the army whichever army it would change them uh some of some people in society actually believe that after the war yeah and i think i i think it happens more with union veterans than confederate mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's such a universal confederate experience 
Um, and of course they have their, their other like vigilante, you know, problems right. um, that are kind of beyond the scope of this. But yeah, I think, and maybe what is, you know, veteran, they're allowed to appear as veterans doing these reunion activities and those are acceptable and society is okay with that. And I don't want to say society just wants them as a mascot. Cause I don't think that, I don't think it's quite that cheap. Um, but I just imagine they're like, I really empathize with their frustration that they've given their youth, um, you know, their time with their families and, and their health um, because they were, you know, and, and, they've saved the union and so i mean that's a little idealistic but they have and then they get pushed aside by a bunch of people who didn't serve Mm. um and and i don't mean to suggest that like the veterans experience is the only you know american experience that you can have but it is there's an irony there and it's not i Mm. i can understand why they were upset i guess Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Absolutely. Uh, so you've, you've provided us with this great work, uh, and, and I got a lot of new things out of it, uh, which I had not thought about before. I obviously understand the input of alcohol and uh, the idea of masculinity in the modern sense because I, you know, I, I quit. And, and sometimes that caused some arguments uh, amongst yeah. people. Uh, so I can kind of see some parallels there. What is the uh, thing that you want the readers to get out of this work as far as an overall idea or some kind of that higher thing that uh, that you put out there for people to understand? That's a really good question. Um, and I realize that people, you know, a lot of people are going to read this book because they're interested in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I... I am too, and I get it. Um, I think there's the. I think the larger takeaway is that this book tells us something about how intimately um, our our food and drink, what we eat and drink, is connected to who we identify with as a person, and how we fit as people into our communities. Um, and obviously my book can't answer all of those questions. And there's a whole world of food studies scholarship that gets at this. Um, but I think there are really interesting, very thought provoking things about the 1860s. It's certainly researching. It certainly changed the way that I think about alcohol. Um, I grew up in a Baptist family, you know, a teetotaling family. Um, and so it, you know, some of these ideas, I had heard them before as a child, Um, and like everybody, I know people who struggle with drinking too much or worrying, like how much is too much? Am I drinking heavily? Do I have a problem? You know? So I think that those questions are, they still resonate. And I think, I mean, I sometimes jokingly say like, my book just asked this question, like how much can I drink and still be a good person? Um, and that's a flippant way of putting it, but I, I, I think that's a question a lot of Americans ask. Um, and I think we do need to think about how how closely we tie what we eat and drink to to our our conception of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, that's very well said. And I will say that 
I really uh, appreciate the fact that this isn't just a civil war book. This is a book about gender history, uh, you know, and the idea of masculinity, obviously. It's a, it's a food history book. Mm-hmm. And so it's touching multiple bases. It's not uh, what we would call, quote, just a civil war book. It's not, yeah. you know, and, and that really helps uh, people to see things in new ways. And as you said, you're, you've seen it in a different way now with this usage and possibly even the temperance movement uh, in a different way or at least diving mm-hmm. into it a different way. And that's what this you know, grand thing we call history is supposed to yes, do. It's supposed absolutely. to challenge us and make us think a little differently uh, than we did. Uh, what's next for you? Do you have any ideas about what's coming up uh, down the road for you? Yeah, a little bit. So I'm still playing. Um, one of the things we didn't get to touch on today, which is completely fine. Um, there are lots of interesting things with prohibition and state level regulation in the war and in the in the Confederacy and in the border. Um, and since I'm in Missouri, um, I didn't. Missouri history is fascinating, and I didn't get a chance in the book to fully unpack what's going on with Missouri provost marshal records. Um, so, and there's an interesting relationship between loyalty and permits to sell liquor um, in different parts of the state. And so I'm trying to untangle that, figure out a little bit what's going on there. It's not a book length project, but um, it's just a little side thing. And then kind of moving beyond this, I'm really interested right now in state and local interpretations of the war, um, really starting in Missouri and in the border region, um, there's a lot, um, a lot of, because the engagements are smaller here, we've got some national parks and some historic sites, but we've got a lot of state and local history sites related to the Civil War. And Missouri is incredibly messy um, but there are also a lot of African-American uh, units engaged along the border. There are Native Americans engaged in some in some different um, altercations. So I'm really curious to see kind of how these sites get up and running, um, how they're interpreting and those sorts of those sorts of questions. So I am very, very early <laughs> into that project. Um, but I teach a lot of public history. I I mean, quite frankly, I love driving the back roads of Missouri. There is, especially in the Ozark hillish re- regions, hilly regions. Um, so it's partly because I, you know, would really like to be spending my time um, driving around Missouri, looking at sites and poking, you know, poking down different rabbit holes. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating state, and I've really enjoyed uh, I, I enjoy living here. And so for a while, I am focused on Missouri, um, in a couple in a couple ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's it's a civil war in itself. In Absolutely. <laughs> so there's yes. a lot to, there's a lot of, a lot of things to cover. In yes. That one. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Well, Megan, thank you so much for for coming on and uh, talking about your book. It it was a fascinating read. I really enjoyed it, and. I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. 